I'm never, ever, ever going to take for granted the fact that someone would give me money to read an email from me. Welcome to the Substack Podcast, where we have conversations with independent writers, bloggers, thinkers, and creatives of every background. Hi, Paula. Thanks for coming on the Substack Podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited. So we see a lot of food writers on Substack, um, but your publication, Stain Page News, um, stood out to me because you're specifically focused on cookbooks, um, which just like said to me that like this person is, isn't just really into like, food as this broader topic, but you have this like truly geeky obsession with cookbooks specifically that I really want to hear more about. Um, how did you come to fall in love with this topic? Oh, gosh. Okay. Um, so way back when I graduated from college... Um, I originally thought that I wanted to go to grad school and go into academia. Um, and what I wanted to do was I, this was not really a thing that existed then, but I wanted to look at, um, sort of food, cultural history of the 20th century through the lens of books, um, as literature sort of, um, and anyway, I applied to grad school a bunch of times and didn't get in because people kept saying, you know, like, you're a great candidate, but we don't have anyone here who can help you study that. Um, so in the meantime, I started um, writing book reviews freelance. Well, first for a just like um, type pad blog, because this was what, 2007, 2008. Um, and then later for outlets. Um, and yeah, I've been covering cookbooks ever since. Wow. So you're, this, uh, this got me even more excited about this topic. So you really are coming at it from like a, a researcher sort of mindset way back in the day of wanting to just like understand cookbooks as a genre, it sounds like, um, before mm -hmm. you, you got into um, writing. Um, how does, you mentioned writing on a, a blog in the early days and then writing professionally. And then um, now you have uh newsletter on Substack, um, how does that experience of early blogging compare to writing today? <laughs> um, I mean, I guess that's why I started the newsletter, right, was because I missed blogging. So I started um, writing cookbook reviews and later just about everything else for a blog called Eat Me Daily that no longer exists. Um, and that was, uh, they looked at the sort of liberal arts of food. So it was art, it was film, it was books um and just like generally weird stuff with a good sense of humor um so I started there and that was a very like late aughts style blog right um and then from there I moved on to writing for Eater um which is a very different <laughs> style of blog it's I mean and was then to what it is now too um so for so the, folks who haven't read Eater, can you tell us a little bit about how it's different? Oh, yeah, sure. Uh, how it was different when I wrote for it versus now. Yeah. Um, I mean, I can't really speak to their current um, style of blogging, but when I worked there, it was very like quick hit news, reblogs, um, everything with like a sense of humor, not a sense of, yeah, a sense of humor and like a point of view, um, the point of view of, you know, restaurant insiders. Um, but the two were different in that one was very much, Eater was very much volume driven when I worked there. So it was very much get in, get out of the story, get it up. Um, 
have the best headline, that kind of thing. Um, and I missed that. Like, I also have a background in cooking in restaurants and like the, the, the feeling you get from cooking in a restaurant and writing a really solid blog post that goes up really quickly is very similar to me. It's like a very speedy, quick, um, like, uh, a strategy is involved. You have to be very efficient. So like, figuring out how to do do that in my head that like scratches the itch of like okay now I'm doing I'm now I'm working right um and that doesn't really exist anymore in media near as I can tell at least you know not in my circles um so I missed it um I missed talking about cookbook news which I didn't really see anyone doing um, and I just started tweeting stuff. Um, and then I, people started picking up stuff I was tweeting and I was like, well, this is kind of not great because <laughs> I'm a freelance writer and, um, you know, I, I would like to be making some money off of, off of the scoops I'm finding. Um, there was one in particular that was, uh, right after Anthony Bourdain passed away, not right after, but um, a bit after, they announced that they were going to be publishing um, a book that he um, had been working on when he passed away. And so um, I tweeted about it and everyone linked to the tweet, like People Magazine linked to the tweet. It was wild. And I was just like, why am I just throwing this stuff up on Twitter when I'd be writing it? So that's a very long way of saying that, um, the newsletter scratches both the like quick hit, like how, how, how much information can you relay in one sentence thing that I got from blogging? Um, and also fills the whole of the, of the cookbook news, um, that I wasn't seeing other places. That makes sense. It's, I think the, um, it's, it sounds so simple, but I feel like the the addition of an email list really just like changes that sort of relationship, right? Where it's like, even if you have a popular blog post and it, it goes super viral and everyone is reading it, um, you kind of like, you never really know who's on there and they kind of, you know, go off into the ether and do something else. But when you have a place for people to subscribe and get more of it, then it's like you're actually building this relationship with an ongoing audience. Yeah. And especially with a topic like my topic, which is so focused I think that, um, you know, in the grand scheme of things, cookbooks are not, you're never going to make it rich with like a cookbook website or TV show or whatever, but like being able to focus it at a self-selecting audience who has said, okay, I'm interested in this topic. I'm interested in cookbooks. I want to hear what you have to say about them. It, it amplifies what you're saying so much more. I'm curious whether um, you feel like you've created a, like a different sense of community because you're this independent writer at the center of your work versus um, writing about cookbooks and reviewing them um, on, say, Eater or Food52's communities. Gosh, you know, um, not really. I don't allow comments on my newsletter. Oh, interesting. <laughs> so um, I actually uh, did on today's newsletter, um, but it's a rarity for me. I, I the the newsletter management it, for me is very much about like the path of 
you know, least resistance in many ways. And um, it came down to like, did I want to spend a ton of time moderating comments? And I decided that that was not for me. Um, so I don't know if that's I actually, I, no, I really like that. I respect that. Um, it actually like this sort of ties into, um, I noticed that you, you started writing stain page news a few years ago and then you went on hiatus and then you brought it back. Um, and, I just thought it was like great because like a, lo- a lot of writers struggle with getting into this rhythm and feel maybe like over obligated to do more or maybe, yeah, like, you know, respond to a moderate comments or um, write all the time and consistently. Um, do you have any sort of just like advice or learnings from this experience of being able to like step away and come back again? Yeah. Gosh, how did that happen? Um I mean, the money is a big part of that, right? Like, not to get too in the weeds about the money, but as a freelancer, you can only spend too much time, so much time on things that don't pay. So that was that was part of why I stepped away. I just like couldn't excuse it anymore. Um, I couldn't I couldn't make the time, and I wasn't about to give up weekends or anything. You know, like freelancers deserve downtime too. Um, <laughs> So, so having an outlet where I could um, make some money off of it was honestly a huge, huge deal for me. Um, I priced it actually, though, such that I priced it pretty low. I think it's five bucks a month. Um, and I did that specifically because I know that things come up where you can't do it occasionally. And I didn't want people to feel like, you know, we're paying her 20 bucks a month or whatever it is. And then she, you know, doesn't write. Um, you know, that's not to say I, I write pretty much every week, but things come up, you get sick, you want to take a vacation, whatever, like, it's not going to happen every week. But um, I do think that if you're consistent in your publishing week to week, you will see it in open rates, and you will see it in click throughs, and you will see it in the number of people who respond to the newsletter um and it snowballs for sure had you thought about because you mentioned one of the reasons of, for stepping away is that um you couldn't justify it as a non-paid thing you're doing versus the other paid work you had to focus on um had you considered doing paid subscriptions previously uh i know you you did end up adding them um when you moved to substack i didn't um i it hadn't really occurred to me as an option. I had tried to figure out how to do affiliate links. Um, Amazon doesn't let you do affiliate links in emails, as I'm sure you know, and people listening might not know. Um, but I, I was doing a thing where I was uh, send, I would send the email and then I would put the text of the newsletter on my website, but I'd have to like completely reformat it just so I could put in the Amazon links and then like no one was ever using them. <laughs> So it's this huge thing. And I was just like, there's no, there's just no way. There's no way I'm ever going to be able to make money off of this. And then I, you know, um, y'all made the paid subscription thing really easy, honestly. How has uh, having paid subscriptions changed your relationship with your writing, if at all, uh, since I imagine it does allow you to focus a little bit more time on that? Yeah. Um, I feel a responsibility to my readers um, you know, even though I, I try to price it affordably, I um, am never, ever, ever going to take for granted the fact that someone would give me money to read an email from me. Um, so 
So I definitely take that into consideration. So for example, recently I, um, I used to send my newsletters Wednesdays and Fridays because, um, new cookbooks come out on Tuesdays. So I wanted it to be, you know, when, uh, books had come out and also that there had been, um, articles written about the books would run Tuesday or Wednesday when, uh, food sections published also. Um, but I was finding that Friday, so the Wednesday article is the free article and the Friday article was, or the Friday issue was the paid. And I was noticing that the Friday paid issue was kind of skimpy. So I moved it to Tuesdays so that there would be more time and more, more time for things to happen <laughs> so that I could give my paid subscribers um, like a meteor issue every week. That makes sense. Um, I'd love to just like, dive into cookbooks themselves uh, since we've been talking about you and your publication a bit. Um, but you also write about this like really fascinating topic that you have a lot of insight into. Um, I would love to just maybe kick things off by talk about like why people buy cookbooks. Um, I think about the cookbooks I've received from my mother. Um, she loves cooking. I do too. And so food has like become this way for us to bond, um, especially when I was like, you know, younger and, and, sort of making that transition from angsty teenager to person that my mother can actually converse with. Um, and so my experience with cookbooks has been that they bring us closer to other people or like remind us of a sense of place. Um, is that, does that align with what you've seen? Um, why do people buy cookbooks in a world where so much cooking now happens through online recipes? Sure. I mean, gosh, I think there are tons of reasons why people buy cookbooks. Um, Oh, where do I start? Okay, so first of all, I think that there are two different ways that people react or um, interact with cookbooks, which is that um, some people are recipe very recipe driven. I'm going to follow this recipe. I'm going to panic if I have parsley and not basil. I'm going to um, frantically text my friend Paula to see if I can cut it down, you know, to to serve four instead of eight, that kind of thing. Cause I do get these texts. You must be that person for all your friends. <laughs> <laughs> and then the other people who are like, they just glance at it and you know, Oh, kale, potato, sausage, soup. Great. And just do whatever they want. So I think that you start there, right? Like this. So there's these two schools of people. Um, the people who are real sticklers for the recipes are the people who are buying, um, very generalist cookbooks. Um, I'm talking about like The Joy of Cooking or New York Times cookbook, those kinds of things, How to Cook Everything by Mark Bittman. Um, but also a lot of the books that are like weeknight dinners, um, healthy food that still tastes good, uh, basic pastas, like those kinds of things, things that are very action oriented. So you have those consumers of cookbooks, right? People who are like, I'm buying this book because I literally want to make this thing for dinner. And then you have the other people who are buying them for inspiration, for um, ideas as uh, launch pads. Um, and those are people who are maybe buying more restaurant books, international cookbooks, uh, books, books that are very visual, um, but you know, then you get into, there's also professionals buying cookbooks and there's also people who are buying them to read them as literature. And there are people who are buying them as status objects to have on their coffee table. And there are people who are buying them as souvenirs. You know, I went to 
this restaurant on my vacation and now I want their cookbook as you know a, a totem of that time um that I spent at that restaurant so so I think there's a lot of different reasons that people buy cookbooks <laughs> yeah sounds like it yeah a little brainstorm right there um, do you find that cookbook publishers nudge authors into um, like appealing to one of these certain kinds of markets the way that we might expect, um, you know, maybe like an editor for a, a, someone who's writing a, uh, in journalism to like maybe nudge them towards certain kinds of audiences? Does that happen with cookbooks? Oh, absolutely. And like, I, I would even take it a step farther and say that certain publishers um, tend to publish, uh, you know, different b- books for different audiences. I mean, that's not 100% true across the board. But if you look at like Fiden, for example, they are known for doing these big sort of arts, artsy chef and restaurant books from um, renowned chefs around the world. But then also they do these like, uh, they call them the food Bibles where it'll be, you know, the big book of Irish cooking or was their most recent one. Um, that's not the title of it. It's called the Irish cookbook. Anyway, they've done them for India and Thailand and Mexico and like all these different countries. So they, they veered that way. These big books, um, you get 10 speed, which does a lot of books with chefs. Um, so, you know, each publisher sort of finds their niche and and cultivates that audience. Of course, there are outliers to all of that that people will tell me about the second they listen to this. But <laughs> And so someone, I guess, like there are a lot of different types of cookbook authors as well, right? Like I, I'm thinking about um, like the domestic brand types, like maybe like Martha Stewart or Chrissy Teigen um, or like chefs um, or food mm-hmm. critics. Um and so it's just sort of like different publishers that appeal to different types of authors. Mm-hmm. And there are, I mean, there are so many more cookbook authors than you would ever even think of, you know, like there are a lot of people who, you know, write small volumes that are, you know, a book about jam or a book about Jewish baking or a book about, um, I don't know, I don't even cover the diet books, but they're a whole thing of, you know, cooking for diabetes and all of that. So there are all these wings of, cookbook authorship that um it's it's pretty endless there's a lot to write about (laughs) (laughs) how do um cookbooks intersect with the rise of food blogging in the last let's say 10 or 20 years um you've got like smitten kitchen or pioneer woman types who've written their own cookbooks um do you see food blogging as this democratizing force for cookbooks of you know allowing new entrants into the market um or did it negatively impact the demand for cookbooks um i think Hmm, how do I put this? I, I think that the demand for cookbooks is not linked to food blogging. And the reason that I will say that is because I think that the demand for cookbooks was more tied to the 2008 recession, which was sort of coincided with the rise of food bloggers for maybe the same reason, um, which is, you know, like a very complicated way to answer that question. Um, What I will say is that, like you said, a lot of the big names of that first generation of food bloggers um, have written cookbooks to great success. Um, And also that people are still doing that. Um, And then these days also you um, tend to see also YouTubers and uh, Instagram influencers who uh, write cookbooks as well. 
Um, I had no idea that the 2008 recession uh, coincided with a rise of food bloggers. And I'm, as I'm hearing that, I'm just thinking about right now, um, experiencing the COVID pandemic that we're, we're seeing right now and how that is correlated with a rise in um, people writing on Substack. And I'm wondering if it's similar forces at work. Um, can you tell us just a little bit about like what that was like in, in 2008? I mean, that was mostly just due to the fact that people couldn't afford to eat out anymore, so they were eating at home. Um, there was also, you know, at the time, a cultural in discovery. I don't know what you want to say. Like, I was a young person then, and so it just seemed like everyone I knew was 25 and teaching themselves how to cook. I'm sure that's not what it looked like from the outside. But what I do know is that book sales started going up, um, and then there was this real big boom in cookbook publishing and you know it's been chugging along ever since um near as I can tell in the current crisis cookbook sales are doing okay um maybe even up but uh anecdotally I have noticed that they're you know and I've been covering this for 10-12 years um I've noticed significantly fewer book deal news coming across Uh, my desk. So that's a little troubling to me, but hopefully people are just being cautious and it'll pick up again in the fall. That's really interesting to think about. Um, What is the role of narrative in cookbooks? Um, Because I mean, as we were just sort of thinking about the different types of people that buy cookbooks and why um, there's this tendency to, for me to like initially think of cookbooks as essentially how-to books. Um, but then you can kind of look at it through this narrative lens as well, um, where they, then I start thinking about them in relation to this broader genre of like food memoirs. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm thinking about like Tamar Adler's An Everlasting Meal, which kind of straddled both genres of like cookbook and memoir. Um, where is sort of the line between something being a memoir about food versus a a how-to sort of cookbook? Yeah, I mean, I don't know that there needs to be a line there. I think that that what you're doing with a memoir is you're trying to evoke the feeling of being in a place and time, and you're trying to represent something you remember as best you can remember it. And I think that a recipe does the same thing in a much more obviously tactile and real world way, Um, but that that can be part of the experience of evoking this memory. Um, I'm thinking specifically about restaurant cookbooks. You know, restaurants aren't supposed to last forever. You know, they're, they're, uh, they're a business that is born and, you know, has a heyday and then probably someday ends hopefully with everyone retiring very happy and, and well off. Um, but, uh, you know, in the meantime, it's, it's, um, it's a feeling that can, can go away. I mean, as we're learning the hard way right now, um, that the atmosphere and the buzz of a busy restaurant and the, the food that it cooks is not, it's not a forever thing. Gosh, I didn't mean to get this <laughs> depressing, but that the narrative yeah, I love it. restaurant follows that, you know, can, can evoke that and can be a record of what that energy was while it existed. It feels like, I mean, that just also makes the case for books more broadly. It's a really beautiful take um, and I appreciate it because it just makes me think about how when we were talking about online food blogging versus cookbooks and how those two things can sort of like co- coexist. Um, and similarly, you know, just 
writing in general, there's a place to write tweets, there's a place to write blog posts, um, and there's always going to be this place to write books just because it is sort of like this more permanent record or a marker in time, as you're saying, um, to like capture a certain sentiment that maybe something shorter form can't always do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And and that it it can look at it from different angles, right? You can have a cookbook where you, you know, involve the pastry chef and you have some sample playlists from the, the music that plays in the restaurant. You have the photographs of the space and you have um, you know, maybe you have a few testimonials from customers and that kind of thing. And all of it builds and adds to become as close as you can get, I think, to the the restaurant itself. And I think that the recipes are a key part of that because you could say, okay, well, what about, you know, an episode of some TV show where they interview chefs and go to restaurants and things, but, but it's the food, the food is the thing. And so when you have the recipes, you can understand how the food is made, even if you don't make them at home, right? Like even if you don't recreate it in your own kitchen, you can still read about it and say, oh, okay, well, they made it with this brand of soy sauce instead of this brand of soy sauce because so-and-so was from here and then, but at this market, they only had this and then, oh, they have this uh, wild technique where they, I don't know, salt, mushrooms, you know, two hours ahead, whatever. You read the thing and you learn all this stuff about what went into this restaurant in a way that you can't learn otherwise. Mm. Yeah, in that sense, like it's like the recipe isn't just a process or a list of steps, but just a, a peek behind the curtain to see like what really goes into, um, especially as you're saying with like a restaurant cookbook. Mm-hmm. Um, what's the mark of a good cookbook for you? <sighs> what's the mark of a good cookbook? I don't know. There's a just what are your favorite types? <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say there's a difference between a good cookbook and like a cookbook that I get like excited about. Um, I like really weird cookbooks. I mean, if something can ex- surprise me, uh, that's gonna get me excited. Um, weird art, weird design makes me excited. Um, sort of over the top writing makes me excited. Um, but like what makes for a good cookbook that, you know, most people who aren't the crazy cookbook lady are going to think is good, um, is, you know, I, I want to be able to open to three separate pages and want to make one of the recipes I would say is big. Um, I think that information beyond the recipes that you can use, in multiple um, settings is is important for me for like a really good cookbook. Like if I'm going to keep a cookbook in my kitchen, I need info in it beyond the recipes that is useful to me in more than one way. Um, so uh, say you have a book on sourdough um, and, and sourdough starters. I want to be able to read about how the starter can be applied to bread versus pizza versus muffins or whatever. And that's, that to me is a book that's not just like a one-off disposable, whatever cookbook. That's a book that, that is um, earned its keep on, on its spot on my shelf. What are some um, like styles or trends that you've seen in cookbooks over the years, especially just sort of comparing like modern, let's say like post-internet style cookbooks? Are they really different from the cookbooks of the 50s? 
Oh gosh. <laughs> We're going all yeah. the way back. Maybe the nineties. <laughs> so I mean, cookbook, you would be shocked how much cookbooks has changed. I bought this cookbook recently from 1999 and like the photographs if you didn't know it was from 1999 you would think for from the 80s like you would not be able to guess um so so since I've started writing about cookbooks um the big things have been most books dropped the jackets um so we don't do jackets anymore there was this big trend towards um unfinished paper so it was like this sort of matte um, finish that, in my opinion, made the photos look kind of blurry as opposed to like a glossy finish paper, mm-hmm. um, which people like because the unfinished paper is thicker and it makes your book look bigger. Um, but uh, I think it made the photography look terrible and we seem to be moving away from that a little bit. So that's good. Um, oh, the big trend recently has been like the white covers with the photos that are... Um, like with the white border around the photo, I'm thinking of like Alison Roman's cookbooks have that. Um, what else? As far as topics go, I feel like there was a, a big restaurant push that we seem to be coming out of where it's just like, oh, if you're the big chef in your size town, you should have a cookbook. Um there's always been nerdy bread boy books. There's al- there are always men write these like my bread journey cookbooks. Um, now we're seeing more regional international cookbooks, which I think is good. Like not just, I don't know, China, but specific regions of China. Um, that kind of thing I think is great. Yeah. <laughs> love it. I love the aesthetic ones the changes that you mentioned I'd love to just see like your collection of cookbooks all lined up chronologically I just I imagine you could just like visually see how much they've changed over time oh probably yeah I should (laughs) fun project (laughs) (laughs) Um, how does an author go about getting a cookbook published is it similar to getting books published in general Um, is there anything special about the cookbook genre um how do you get a book published yeah I mean it's about the same it's about the same it's um similar to like the nonfiction um world where you write a book proposal and then you get the advance and then you write it um cookbook book proposals you need a whole list all of the recipes listed um like ahead of time so you know what every single recipe in the book is going to be and you also um have to develop them so I'm working on a proposal right now and I think we have 12 full recipes and then um like five to eight sub recipes that are real short you know here's the stock that goes into the soup kind of thing um and then of course the the cookbook publishers are often specialized publishers they're not publishing novels and other things but they're I mean they're part of those publishers but how do they coordinate like all that gorgeous photography is that i imagine the design falls under the publisher does how where does all the photography come from uh well i can tell you how it worked on my book yes i would love to hear all your book um so i wrote the austin cookbook i wrote it in 2016 it came out in 2018 um we shot the photography, I worked with a photographer from um, Dallas-Fort Worth named Robert Strickland, um, who's an excellent photographer, A-plus to Robert. Um, he 
came down for two long weekends when we shot all of the food that was um, where we worked with a food stylist um, for like studio food shots. And then I don't know how many weekends he came down to shoot the restaurants and um, we shot some of the food in the restaurants also. So the book is a collection of restaurant recipes from Austin restaurants. Um, So yeah. And so then when all the photography was done, I sent that to the publisher and I also sent them just an email with like a million links to um, Flickr and Instagram and like all these things that I just thought looked Austin-y um, murals and, you know, colors and just all kinds of random stuff I thought might be useful. And then they had their designer sort of put it all together. Um, they had some fun ideas where like some of the font for the headings of the recipes was, um, inspired by like old Tex-Mex, uh, menus and stuff like that. So, um, it's all, yeah, it's all very evocative of the thing. And I think that's right it should be like that right it's kind of cool because as a writer I imagine um like there aren't that many genres that are so photography heavy or like it's you know producing this cookbook is really an entire production process of not just writing the words but um also having a vision for the visuals and um, knowing how you want to portray them and so you're you're not just like writing writing out words but you're also having to like think in 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 terms of imagery and layout um which just like draws upon many more skills than maybe some of us other writers are (laughs) comfortable with you know though it's not dissimilar from blogging in what way um you're thinking about you're thinking about white space you're thinking about how do i break this up with headers so that it's easily skimmable Mm. um you're thinking about like how long are people's attention spans? Like it's not writing a novel. You're not going to have a wall of text. Right. So like, how are you, how are you guiding the reader's eyes across? I mean, I didn't design the book, but how are you, you know, how are you breaking up that information into these digestible little chunks? That's a really good point. I guess I'd never really thought of that before. I'm such a like text heavy person. I'm just like, ah, I can't, do anything that involves images so I, the writing that I do doesn't really have many images in it and stuff but you're right like I definitely think about the breaking up of paragraphs and text um and there's sort of like different styles too like some people really lean into the long rambling narrative style and like enormous paragraphs and they make you sort of like work for it um and then other people like do that you know one line one dramatic statement per <laughs> per paragraph um so yeah you're right I mean even even bloggers have to be thinking about how they visually lay things out um to draw people well, in for my newsletter for example certain sections I do bullet points I always bold cookbook titles and cookbook author names um I'll bold like a few keywords in a in a quote um and that's the same muscle right it's like here's where I want you to look right you still need to draw people's eye in, even if you're just writing text without without photos. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned, you know, we talked a little bit about the fact that you wrote your own cookbook, um, and you wrote that after like being a, a cookbook critic for uh, over a decade now. Um, after years of reviewing other people's cookbooks, what prompted you to cross over and, and try to write your own? It was something I always wanted to do. Um... And, and, you know, the, it was an opportunity that came up. Um, 
it was not it was not my idea to write the book it was an opportunity that um came up from my agent and i i was like yes absolutely um i wanted to experience the process of it um because for example before that i was reviewing cookbooks and i always obviously a lot more people than the author go into the cookbook but i always use the author's name as sort of this authorial presence um, when I would talk about the book, but I think it was really useful in showing me like how much of the process is actually totally out of the hands of the author. Things like a common complaint you'll hear about cookbooks if you go to an Amazon review, right? It's that um, the ingredients are on a different page than the instruction. So you have to flip back and forth between the ingredients and the instruction. And that's, you know, often there's no getting around that, but there's also just like 17 people who influence that. And like, so I, so I think that going through the process of publishing a cookbook was really illustrative to me of just like how many hands are in the thing. Um, and, you know, this is not shade at my publisher, Abrams, they were great. Um, but just living the experience, I think, really informed my um ability to review cookbooks um i'm i'm probably going to do more we'll see more cookbooks (laughs) (laughs) there are addictive book writing things Um, i just published my first book um, as a nonfiction book and um definitely had that same sort of takeaway of like wow like so many people go into writing this final thing unfortunately like only your name appears as the author, um, which means that if everything's amazing, then the credit goes to you. And if there's anything wrong with it, then um, it is also looks like something that you wrote, which is um, this very weird experience. Um, mm-hmm. I'm curious about like your research process, just to sort of like trade notes on it. Um, my experience was it was sort of like, I mean, I loved the book writing process now in retrospect, but during it, it was sort of miserable in a lot of ways because you're just sort of like trapped in front of your laptop and you're typing all the time. Um, And I have this like very glamorous image of cookbook writing by contrast being this like feast of the senses where you're cooking and you're hosting taste test parties and you're going out to eat for inspiration. Um, Take me down and out. What what is the the process of writing a cookbook really like? Um, Well, it's a little bit of that, but... (laughs) Ah, damn it. (laughs) It was a lot of sending emails um so my book was recipes from restaurants so um it was a lot a lot a lot of emailing chefs and publicists and you know chefs are not necessarily known for email etiquette (laughs) um or even having you know a computer in their office in their restaurant so it was a lot of trying to track people down, reminding them, oh yeah, I'm Paula Forbes with the project where we're, you know, doing all the Boston restaurant cookbooks and, or recipes and, you know, like reminding them who you are and like all the things. Um, So that was probably the first four months of it. And then, and then I did do a lot of recipe testing. I had a dinner party every month, every Friday for about three months. Um, (laughs) You're everyone's favorite friend. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> I don't know. I was just, I didn't, re- a big thing with me was I didn't want to waste the food. Um, but it got to be a lot of work and it got to um, some weird dinner parties when you started, you know, only having a few recipes left and you're like, well, these things don't really go together, but you'll eat it and you'll be happy. Um, <laughs> so yeah, so it was that. And then 
very heavy on uh, copy edits are huge in cookbooks. Like you always want the um, ingredients in the order they appear in the recipe, for example. Um, what else is like that? Oh, we had to do weight. So my book was published um, in metric and in... Um, what do you call it? Imperial? Imperial? Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. Uh, cups and teaspoons. <laughs> um, at right. The same that time. one. <laughs> so there was a lot of like, how do we, how do we translate this? Um, yeah. Figuring out how, how much stuff weighed like months after you had tested it. That kind of thing. So you had, this might be a, a stupid question. You had recipes um, your in, in your book that were from restaurants, but then you also had to test them out yourself. Um, are you like adjusting their recipes at all? Or is it just to ensure that you can, that someone reading it could then replicate the same experience? Yeah. So I cut the size down. So often the chefs would like send me just their actual recipe, which made five gallons of enchilada sauce or whatever it was. Um, and so I would have to cut that down to the amount of enchilada sauce that would go on like one lasagna pan of enchiladas. Um, and then also talk about how to make the enchiladas because that would be different than how they would make it in the restaurant. But the recipes themselves, I didn't change. So like the amount of chili powder or um, garlic or, you know, the, the taste of the thing is the same, but just at a home scale. Got it. And so it's sort of like you're co-writing with the restaurants in a sense, right? Because it's um, this process of they're agreeing to give up their recipes for your book and you have to convince them of that, I assume. And then um, you're kind of taking that and putting it in this right like narrative and context that people will enjoy them. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it's also a lot of interviews and um, telling their stories and that kind of thing too. So, mm. yeah. Um, just to sort of wrap up um you've had this privileged experience of seeing cookbooks on both sides um, both as the author and as the person reviewing them um did that writing experience give you more empathy for um others writing of cookbooks yes and no um i think I started, a good friend of mine once told me that bad recipes are stealing. Like you are stealing money from people who spent that money on their food and they were expecting to be able to make X and if it doesn't work and that's on you, that's stealing. So I still like firmly, firmly believe that. And I don't think anyone has any business publishing recipes that are not thoroughly tested and work. So that's what I'll say for starters. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think it's a scary thing to write a cookbook. I think, you know, I know every single like weird thing in my cookbook that no one will ever, ever notice. And, you know, they don't keep me up at night, but I know they're there. Um, there's not mistakes in it or anything. Just, you know, you, you always know like the weird thing, like, oh, that, that, condensation on that glass and that photo dripped slightly off or you know that kind of stuff that like no one cares about so yeah I have empathy for that you know it's a hell of a process it's like you have to be so organized and you have to be um just on top of everything and it's so much more data than just writing the text of the thing um it's so much work. It's so cookbooks are so much work. And I have so much respect for anyone who 
surprised to write one um, unless they don't test the recipes. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take that advice. Um, that's a good place to end. Thank you so much for joining and chatting with me. Where should people find you if they want to check out your work? Yeah, uh, well, I am Stain Page News on Substack and on Instagram. Um, I'm also Paula underscore Forbes on Instagram and Paula Forbes on Twitter. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you.